here we are, we're in the last lesson. And thank you for sticking with me. I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's, we, again, we live in a day when it's, you, you start a class like this at your peril because, because you really don't know how many people you're going to end up with. And, um, you know, people are all gung-ho at the beginning and then they drop out and, and so on. And um, so I'm very happy and thankful to you guys that have been here all the way through this and those that have uh, joined us midway through. And I hope that it's been beneficial to you. So we're in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation quotes or rather alludes to the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. I mean, easily more than any other New Testament book. And so, you kind of have to know the Old Testament if you're to get the best out of, or the most out of, the book of Revelation. And we can't obviously do all of that tonight. But what it concerns me tonight is that if it's quoting the Old Testament, how is it using the Old Testament? Um, does my great plan fall apart right at the last fence? Because um, I've been focused on several things, haven't I? And we'll just uh, recap here. First thing is dealing with the creation as a project of God. Now, when we deal with creation as a project, okay, then obviously it's not finished. It started in Genesis 1. It doesn't end uh, when the book of Revelation is finished. It ends when the things in the book of Revelation are finished. Did you see? Uh, which means it's one continuous project. Uh, God has not changed the blueprints uh, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, which is what several uh, schools of interpretation teach. I mean, they wouldn't say they do, but, but uh, the reason that they don't say that is because they've convinced themselves that spiritualization of, of uh, clear, plain sense words is not a change in those words. You see that? And then they've convinced themselves that the God, their God, the God that does that, is not a disingenuous God. What I mean by that is that a God who raises um, expectation, this has been a big word for us, who raises expectations by the words that he uses as the communicator, uh, then can say at the end of it, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant it this way, spiritually, typologically. Do you see? Um, back in the first of the uh, courses, I focused for a while on what is a prophet. And I said that uh, according to... Um, to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 
a prophet is tested by whether what he prophesies comes to pass. Okay, that's how you test a prophet. Well, obviously, there has to be a connection between what he prophesies and what happens. And it has to be a literal connection. Do you see? If it's not a literal connection, that is, if it's not a literal fulfillment, then the prophet, any old prophet, whether he's a true prophet of God or a false prophet of God, it doesn't matter, can say, well, yeah, I know I said that, but here's the spiritual fulfillment. And who's, I mean, how do you test him? The means for testing him have been given up once you spiritualized or, or, or symbolized uh, plain literal words, do you see? So, uh, as the Bible is a, is a prophetic book, that's really uh, an important decision to make. How are we going to take God? Uh, one of the other things that we've focused on is faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. But in order, therefore, to please God, you have to have faith in what he's saying. But if what he's saying is somewhat obtuse, because he may not mean exactly what he says in the words that he uses, then you're not sure whether you're having faith in the right thing. Do you see? So you're not sure that you're pleasing God. You can only have faith. You can only have uh, a biblical faith if the words actually mean literally what they say. Do you see? This is really important. You just uh, talked about your friends here. You know, when I, as a counselor, that is the huge, the big thing. What am I trying to do? Get them to spiritualize the Bible? Absolutely not. I'm trying to get them to believe it. Do you see? When I'm giving them hope, I don't want to spiritualize something because that's a false hope. I want them to show. I want to show them what God says, and they can grasp it. They can hold to those promises. They can take power, you know, strength from those promises. And that's the same for all of us. Uh, that's the way that it it needs to to be. Um, I've also pointed out that this project includes two criteria. The first one is teleology. Okay, which is a goal or a purpose. Okay, go. Come on, Paul, you can spell it. Um, And the other one is eschatology, which is the uh, culmination The last things, eschatos. So the culmination. And these things are parallel lines. Uh, The the two train tracks, if you like, that the creation project runs along. Um, One of the key decisions that has to be made, I mean, for a biblical theologian, is what kind of tell us what kind of teleology or purpose was the Bible written for and um, how are you going to determine what that teleology is uh, what that goal that purpose is 
If you do what so many people do, good Christian people do, and you take the New Testament and you read it back into the Old Testament because you, you convinced yourself that the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, then I hope you can see you have made a decision about how that teleology that's in the Old Testament will turn out. And it will usually terminate at the first coming of Christ at the cross. And that will be your hermeneutical, your interpretative uh, point for understanding the Bible, the cross of Christ. Okay? Problem with that is the Old Testament doesn't agree with you. The Old Testament doesn't put the emphasis on the first coming of Christ. It puts the emphasis on the second coming of Christ, on the kingdom, on the king, on the, the rejuvenation of creation, on the uh, Israel becoming the head and not the tail, on salvation coming to the Gentiles through Israel, on uh, the, the king, the great uh, messianic divine human king, God himself ruling upon his earth transforming the earth um, making it a paradise an Eden uh, once again so your teleology is going to affect your eschatology you see how you think things are going to wind up what I've tried to do in these three courses is I've tried to show you that these go together they must never be separated and uh, you've got to allow the Bible to unfold and fairly early on, most of you learned that if you asked me a question about something further down, further along the line in the Bible, I wouldn't answer it for you, which was very frustrating, I know. <laughs> but, but I did that to try to train your minds to just stick to where uh, the words are pointing that you're actually dealing with. Make sure you've got that. Don't try and import a meaning from another context. You may be right, you may not be right, but the, the thing is you've got to be patient. Let the Bible unfold. Um, now when you do that, when you do what we've tried to do, and we've had to skip some parts, obviously, but when you do that, you're not going to answer all the questions, you're not going to iron out all the problems. And I haven't done that, you see. Um, I see the problems. I see some of the, the questions that I've not been able to answer or I've got guesstimates about. I see them, can I say, clearer than you uh, in this, but, but I don't have all of the answers. That doesn't mean that I think that what we do is that we we retreat into some spiritual, typological, ethereal interpretation in order to make it the Bible agree. You don't make it agree if you make it agree in, in cloud land. It's got to agree down here. In fact, fundamentally, that is an attack upon Scripture to say, oh, it doesn't agree if you actually take it at face value no it contradicts all over the place <laughs> what have you done to the infallibility of God's word if, if it's infallible in this kind of spiritual uh, 
Disneyland, uh, you know, then is it infallible at all? Why didn't it say that in the first place? Do you see? There's always that big question mark. And how are you going to point unbelievers to the veracity of Scripture if you take them away from what the Bible says and you reinterpret it in a different way and say that's what it means? If they've got any sense whatsoever, they'll say, well, that's what you say. And, of course, what do unbelievers say? You can make the Bible teach anything. And you can if you don't believe what it says. If you believe what it says, you can't. So, um, so these have been the, the, the key things. And there are, there are two other things, of course. Where's my black pen? Oh, here it is. Here it is. All right. There are two other things, of course, that I've been focusing on. The first one is what I've called... God's words and God's actions. Okay? That's a GW and GA. God's words, God's actions. And we can, we can add to that God's thoughts, God's words, God's actions. Um, and I pointed out to you, I've pointed this out several times, where God says, let us, or I'm going to do this, and then he speaks it, and then what he thought and what he speaks actually literally happens. And you think, wow, Paul, what a discovery. You know, it's like, I didn't know that. We all know that, but do we, do we grasp the profound lesson that that teaches? That there is no... Um, interference between what's going on in God's mind and what he says and what he says and what he does do you see that? that's the great lesson and if we want to put it in, in the most practical terms none of us when we die will uh, end up in the fiery place asking God or being judged by God and asking God how come, how come we're not allowed into heaven? We did what you told us to do. Believe on Jesus as, our, as a substitute for our sins. Uh, none of us are going to uh, have to question God when he says that, yeah, well, that's what I said, but that's not what I meant. No. What's in his mind, what, in other words, God's intention and God's words and God's actions are all one. That's why you can have faith in him. Not just, not just in abstract words, but in him. Do you see? which is, is deeper. Uh, so this God's words, God's actions motif is throughout Scripture. And, uh, I mean, a couple of examples. 
Naaman, the healing of Naaman. Okay, Second Kings chapter 5. So, Elisha's servant came out and said, look, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll come out clean. And uh, so, Naaman gets annoyed about that and he says, well, what about these other letters, uh, rivers back in Syria? They're more impressive than Jordan. And his servants say, well, yeah, but what if you... I mean, just do it. Just do what he tells you to do. What have you got to lose? And so he does exactly what he was told to do and the result was exactly what Elisha had told him. A little bit early in 2 Kings chapter 1 you had um, Ahaziah who was uh, Ahab's son and he, remember, he only ruled for two years and he fell through a lattice and uh, ended up on, a, on his deathbed. And so he sent, being the son of Ahab and Jezebel, he sent messengers 60 miles to the Philistines, to Ekron, to uh, inquire of Baal Zebub, okay? And Elijah comes down and meets him and says, Well, is it because there is no God in Israel that you've sent messengers to Baal Zebub? And uh, then gives him the message Tell, go tell your king that he will not get up from the bed that he is laid down upon, he will surely die. That was what the angel told Elijah to say. That's what Elijah told the men to say. When after, uh, you remember 50 men were sent out to arrest Elijah, or 51, and they got crispified. And so 50 more came out, and they got sautéed too. And then 50 more were sent out. And then the, the captain realized it wasn't a good idea to demand a man of God, because that's what he called him, to come down to the king who was a pagan king. But when Elijah went down and spoke to the king, he didn't change his message at all. You will not come down from the bed that you've laid upon, but will surely die. And the next verse says, so he died. Why? Because there's a correspondence between God's words and God's actions. Do you see? When God says to you that you uh, are born again by trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ and his death for you and his resurrection for you. Um, You can take that to the bank. I mean, when he says it, it does not appear what you shall be, but you know that when you see him, you will be like him. You'll be glorified like him, you know? when it says that you have the Holy Spirit within you as a pledge, down payment for the glory that's to come. When it says that the um, um, the sufferings of this life are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. All of these things are literal, folks. They, you can believe them. They're real. They're real. Because of the God who speaks them. And that's, that's all I'm doing, all I've attempted to do here, is just to take you through 
Scripture with this belief that God means what he says. And um, I, I hope that I've shown you that you don't need to worry about transitioning over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Actually, all you need to do is have a, a mindset uh, that understands the main pointers, the main... Um, sorry, I'm trying to find the, the right words here. But the signposts that God set up in the Old Testament, just follow them. Just recognize them and follow them. And you will have your course mapped out for you and you'll find the, Old, the New Testament doesn't contradict the Old Testament. And you don't need to do any spiritualizing. You don't need to read the New Testament back in the Old Testament. What you may well need to do is uh, revisit some of your prejudices about what the New Testament teaches. Do you see? And uh, what we've been looking at for that is the intensification of the God's words, God's actions motif, which is the biblical covenants. That's all it is. It's an intensification or an amplification of the God's words, God's actions motif about the central, primary things, the teleological things. Okay? Pointing to the consummation. I think another thing that this, this brings up for us is the fact that we see ourselves much more in the story of the Bible because we're actually in that history. Okay? Because we're in that creation project right now. And then finally, um, board rubber, let's see. Finally, of course, is uh, how this is going to be accomplished. It's all right, God swearing covenants and saying, you know, I'm going to do this and I promise I'm going to do it and it'll all turn out good for you if you have faith. One problem. That gets in the way. You see, sin gets in the way. Was I in the way there? No. Okay. Oh, it's the glare, it's the light, okay. Um, so, sin, you know, God's not going to just make promises to, to a sinner. You, you understand that, that sin is, is that which makes us independent from God. Sin is that which makes us foul up creation. Uh, sin is a contradiction of the will of God. So, if that's the case... God can't just say, yeah, come, come on in. You don't, we don't need to deal with the sin issue. I just want to be nice to you. Okay? He's not, God has not got the message from the modern university campuses that niceness is the chief attribute. Um, sin's got to be dealt with and for the covenants to, to come through, they keep meeting this wall of sin. For the covenants to come through, to be fulfilled, they keep uh, meeting this because none of the covenants, the Noahic covenant, 
the Abrahamic covenant, the priestly covenant, the Mosaic covenant, although that's a temporary one, uh, the Davidic covenant, none of those main biblical covenants have uh, deal with sin. I mean, the Mosaic covenant did, but not in a very good way, did it? What does it do? Condemn us. That's Paul's whole argument in Romans, isn't it? <laughs> First pass, anyway. So, uh, the covenants can't come to their fulfilment because of this. So, there's another covenant that's been made. And that's the new covenant. Do you see? It's, it's, um, there are echoes of it in the Pentateuch. It comes to more realization in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when it talks about a heart of flesh being given to the people of Israel. Uh, but that's in the latter days, it says. In the latter days. And um, throughout the prophets, certainly there are these Holy Spirit passages that you see. Um, Ezekiel 36 is a, a classic one, where uh, Joel chapter 2 is another one, where the Holy Spirit has got to change the hearts of people. He's got to fall on people, be poured out on people. He's the agent of transformation. Yes? But what we see in the Old Testament when we see those spirit passages and also these, these transformation passages... Um, you know, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 62, um, Isaiah 54, and uh, Hosea 2, and Micah 4, um, just many of these, you know, Amos 9, many of these different passages which, which deal with transformation um, of the world is that they're all, they're all at the end. I mean, they all deal with the cleansing and the redemption of people at the end of time, as we know it. They don't deal with, with the ignominy of Jesus dying on the cross and being buried and rising again and going back to heaven. But they deal with, with him on earth, ruling with a rod of iron, uh, justly, and in peace and in prosperity. Yes? So, uh, how is that accomplished? Well, the New Covenant, when you read the New Covenant passages, you don't just read about redemption. You don't just read about salvation from sin. You also read uh, things like Israel's preeminence and, and blessing. You, re, you um, read about the king, the great Davidic king, who will reign. You know, Micah 5.2. Um, o you Bethlehem Ephrata, though you be small among the clans of Judah, yet uh, will, one will come from you, who is to be ruler of my people, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Okay, that's a strange guy from everlasting. So, um, you know, that's, that's a, a culminative ruler. Do you see? Daniel chapter 7 has this culminative ruler, 13 and 14, deals with that. Um, 
so, uh, what you find in New Covenant settings are the other covenants crop up. You even find the Noahic covenant, which is made with the whole of creation, remember, not just with Noah, the whole of the animal kingdom, the whole of creation. You see that the whole of creation and the animal kingdom is transformed by the appearance of this great ruler, the branch, the Messiah. Yes? The, the great king. Um, we find promises in this king's uh, reign of Israel being given its covenanted land, the land that was covenanted in Genesis 15, which they've never possessed. It's about 300,000 square miles. They've never possessed that expanse of land. Um, the Gentiles will be blessed. Nations will be blessed. So there'll be nations that will be uh, will, will actually come stream to this to Zion, to the city of God, wanting to worship God. Those that don't, according to Zechariah 14, they'll have a plague put on them, which shows that there'll be some sin in the kingdom. We have some passages in Zechariah, I think, chapter 8 and uh, uh, Isaiah 65, 66, which talk about the sinner being 100 years old will die. Well, I don't know about you, but, but a sinner dying at 100 years old in today's uh, era, I mean, that's a free pass, isn't it? It's like... George Bernard Shaw, you know, made it to about that as a, a rascal. So, um, so that's, you know, that's obviously in, in this, uh, this setting, uh, this idyllic kingdom setting. What we find, therefore, is that these other covenants are wrapped up in the new covenant. And then we, we find in Isaiah 60, uh, 42, and particularly Isaiah, <coughs> Isaiah 49.8, that this covenant is a person. And he brings salvation both to Israel and to the nations. So we have this clue. We have a ruler who's going to come. He's going to bring peace. He's going to bring uh, justice. Uh, he is going to bring uh, what the United Nations have always promised and can't deliver. You know, the United Nations have just... Uh, had a moment of silence for the death of Fidel Castro. I think they're on the wrong road to bringing about <laughs> world peace. But that's just my think, thinking there. Or they could just stay silent indefinitely. <laughs> well, not until Christ comes back. They will be silenced. Um, so, so what we see is that everything comes to its uh, its culmination, not abstractly, but through a person. A person who is himself a covenant. So that these covenants, um, being blocked by sin, needing redemption to wipe them out, this redemption is provided by this new covenant, as Jeremiah calls it, in Jeremiah 31, sorry about that. So, look at that W. That new covenant, 
Well, the whole thing looks pretty wonky. But anyway. Um, And this new covenant is not just an agreement. It's actually a person. Okay? It's actually Jesus. It's this king who who is Jesus, born king of the Jews. uh, Who in the book of Revelation is called Lord of Lords, King of Kings at his second coming. Do you see? And his second coming, not his first coming, second coming. And uh, Jesus in the book of Hebrews is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the animal, as it were, the covenant-making sacrifice that makes that covenant. And according to uh, Luke 22 and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the new covenant is in his blood. And the church, when we take communion, we participate in remembrance of the fact that we are, uh, we are members of a new covenant community, a redeemed community. If we're members of a redeemed community, anything that was promised to us in the covenants will come to us because we bypass sin. Anything uh, that Israel is promised in the new covenant, and that's a whole bunch of stuff, will come to them. But again, when we look at the Old Testament, and we even look at Romans chapter 11, verses 24 through 27, what we see is that the new covenant isn't made with Israel until the second coming when they look on him whom they pierced. Do you see? Second coming. Um, and um, this, this therefore means that Jesus um, is, the, is the one through whom the purposes of the creation project and the culmination of the creation project, they, they are all orchestrated through him. Do you see? So the, the whole story of the Bible is Christological. Christ is the... Um, uh, he's the... Uh, kind of... The, the, what's the word? Fulcrum of the whole thing. Do you see? So, looking at things this way brings us to a Christological conclusion, brings us to a uh, uh, conclusion that we can actually go back to Genesis 1 and we can can see that, that God has kept on track all this time and we've followed the progress of Revelation and we've come to a, a point where we have, um, we have now the church, which is a resurrection reality. Remember that? It's a resurrection reality. Can't find it in the Old Testament. And we have the church, but then we have in the Old Testament the promises to Israel and we have also promises to the nations through the Abrahamic covenant as well. Some of that being picked up by the church because it's made up of... Um, Jews and Gentiles, mainly Gentiles. Right. So there's our kind of introduction. (laughs) Um, 
and we're not going to go through every chapter of the book of Revelation. But we will start off with an interpretative clue. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book is a promise of blessing. But how does the blessing come? How are we to get this blessing? By reading the book, yes. Anything else? By keeping the words. Ah, okay, so again we, we, we're at a bit of a juncture here because if you listen to a lot of people, the book of Revelation is completely mystifying. And, you know, John Calvin didn't write a commentary on it because he couldn't understand it. Adam Clark, in his commentary uh, of the Bible, said that he didn't understand the book of Revelation. Another guy, William Milligan, a 19th century scholar, said he, even though he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, said, I don't really understand it. Um, You've read about the different schools of interpretation of the book of Revelation, and what's really cool nowadays is to take all of them together, pretend they don't contradict each other, and say, yeah, this is, you know, we have this idealist uh, or this uh, eclectic view of uh, the book of Revelation, which is actually just one uh, millennial view, uh, repristinated. And um, if that's the case, again, what do we have with God? We have, at the end of the Bible, we have a God who promises a blessing on people that he doesn't have to deliver on because nobody knows what he's talking about. So, um, there's a great... If, if I promised a, a blessing on you, or if I promised, I don't know, buy you a new Bible, or something like that, um, you know, if you can expound to me Herman Doyeverd's cosmonomic philosophy of law spheres. Okay? Yes, actually. (laughs) You'll find it in his new critique of theoretical thought, four volumes. Um, Or Cornelius Van Til's transcendental apologetic. Okay? Can you, could you do that for me? There's a blessing in it for you. I'm safe, aren't I? I mean, in present company, and most company actually, I, I'm, I'm safe. I'm not giving anything up. I can promise all I want. And I feel utterly secure, you know, in never having to put my hand into my pocket. Why? Because it's, what I'm promising is out of reach. Do you see? And is God like that? 
God promises you a blessing for keeping these words, but in order to keep them, you need to understand them, but you can't understand them. So, he doesn't have to bless. No, clearly, if you go into reading the book of Revelation with that view, it's because you have gone in there with a presupposition that the book of Revelation is difficult to understand. But it's not. It's a book of, can I remind you, revelation, not obfuscation. Unless you read half the scholars who write about it. In which case, it is a book of obfuscation. And they say that, uh, that because it was written during Domitian's reign in the mid-90s, that the Christians were being persecuted. And so, this is a book of, of hope for the Christians and the symbol, symbolism was understood by the first Christians and so on and we just need to get behind that symbolism and we'll see this, this note of victory and that's the idea, the victory of the church is, is the, well, well, why do you spend 22 chapters talking about that? Why don't you just write the, uh, something the size of Jude? We'd have got the point. Clearly, there's a problem in approach. I would say. And, and, and the key is, as I've said at the beginning of this lecture, the key is, the book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament. So if you know your Old Testament and you can fit this stuff together, you should be good. And that's what I believe. I'm dumb enough to believe that. So let's see if we can work it out. Uh, so, in the ch- first three chapters, they deal with the churches, obviously, and these churches are on a postal route in Asia Minor, in uh, what's now Western Turkey, alright? Some of these cities were important cities, like Ephesus and Pergamon, and some of them were not. Uh, Thyatira wasn't particularly important. Um, so... Um, They weren't chosen then because of the importance of the cities. They were chosen because the the churches were representative of churches. Do you see? That's why they're useful for us today. Uh, Many dispensational teachers have wrongly asserted that the book of Revelation, at least the the seven churches there, represents seven different phases of church history. First of all, it doesn't say it does. So, if you're you're asserting that, I hope that you understand your interpretation is not coming from the Bible. You're forcing an interpretation on the Bible when you do that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if you study church history, it doesn't work out. Thirdly, it destroys the doctrine of imminency. If the book of Revelation in its first three chapters is revealing to us that the church must go through these different phases in its history, then Christ will come back. I hope you can see he couldn't have come back any time before the end of the Laodicean period. Which means the doctrine of imminency is destroyed. But the doctrine of imminency that Christ could come at any time is an important doctrine. I would say it's a biblical doctrine. Uh, moreover, um, the doctrine of imminency is a cherished view of those that hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. Because you can't have the doctrine of imminency if you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. If you believe in a post-tribulational rapture, then I hope you can see that 
Christ couldn't come at any time because you've got to go through the tribulation. Do you see that? So it's a dumb thing to do, to, to do that. Not only is it not, you're not told that in the Bible, but um, you actually destroy other doctrines when you do that. So we'll just say these are representative churches. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's this scene in heaven. Uh, first is the scene of God. God, um, he's on the throne and he's, he's uh, surrounded by these strange living creatures and these 24 elders. We're not sure what the 20, who the 24 elders represent. We can read into that, but we're not exactly sure. They seem to be representative, certainly, of humankind. But whether there's a class or, or something, we're not sure. And um, it resembles quite a lot Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 and that vision which was on earth. There's a rainbow that's over the throne. It's an emerald rainbow. So is that to remind God of the Noahic covenant? I don't know. Maybe. Not sure. Yeah, God didn't say when he said he put his rainbow in the sky that it had to be the colours that we see. I mean... Just because the rainbow is uh, these beautiful red and yellow and pink and green, I'm trying to think of that song. Um, all of those, uh, yeah, all of those colours that we see, it doesn't mean that the rainbow is that colour in heaven. I mean, it's got to match the decor of the throne room, doesn't it? So <laughs> it can be emerald, if can't it? But it can remind him of his pledge to keep the world in uh, its present condition, its uniform condition, until uh, the end of time. That's the basis, a very important basis for the biblical worldview and for the scientific worldview. Okay, no other uh, simple statement. Okay in uh, Genesis 8:22 but on that simple statement that promise of God not to change the seasons and not to bring a flood and disaster but to maintain things day after day year after year century after century and so on uh, that's the uniformity of nature that you need to do science no other worldview has the basis for the uniformity of nature that's what David Hume I'm doing apologetics now, but uh, that's what David Hume critiqued. Do you see? He said, yeah, you see salt going into a water and dissolving, but you, see, you don't actually see the water dissolving the salt. You see water, you see salt, you see dissolving. Three discrete acts, do you see? But you, it's your mind that puts them together, but not in the biblical worldview. In the biblical worldview, you can have that because of the laws that God has made and that these are outside of your interpret the uh, interpretations of the mind. Do you see? They're actually out there. So you have this realistic view of the world. Um, so in chapter 5, you have this, uh, this book and this book has seven seals. And it's this great proclamation and it's to everybody. Everybody in heaven, everybody on earth, everybody under the earth. (laughs) 
who is able to open this, these scrolls? Who's worthy to open the book? Who's worthy? And John gets really sad because nobody comes forth. You would thought with uh, a crowd like that, for all of those people to choose from, one person would come forward. But nobody's come forward because nobody's worthy. And it's the Lamb, Jesus of course, who comes forward and who is worthy. And they all celebrate. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Do you see? To take the book. And the book is given to the Lamb by God. Showing that worthiness for him to take it. And then in chapter 6, he opens six of those seals. And the first four of those seals are opened and these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, yes? Uh, remind me to say something about the apocalypse, okay? Uh, the word apocalypse. Okay, if I write it up there. I'll say something about it. Um... And the question is, um, the question is, who, um, who's that first rider, the white horse rider who comes conquering to conquer? Is he Christ? That's what a lot of covenant theologians say he is. Not all of them nowadays, but some of them, a lot of them did. Um, or is it somebody else? Is it actually a person or is it just a, a symbol of something that's going to happen on earth? That's not as easy to, to say. But we can say he's bad, so he's probably not Christ. We, we know he's bad because he's not in good company. Evil communications corrupt good manners and this guy's definitely around some bad people. Okay, Because the next riders that come out are not godly people, are they? They're coming out and they are destroying the earth. Now, when I say they're not godly, they may be angelic and they may be doing God's bidding because it is the Lamb that releases these agents. So these are agents of the Lamb or agents of God that are wreaking this havoc upon the earth. And what we have is uh, a kind of a false piece. He had a bow, it's no arrows. Crown, so that's interesting. We are given a crown to rule. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This may be an, an individual, a person who is to rule the world, maybe. And then the next one is a fiery red horse who takes peace from the earth. People are killing one another. The next one. He's a black horse. Pair of scales. That's for weighing food. Uh, but the rich people with the oil and the wine don't seem to be impacted. Okay, Do not touch the oil or the wine. That's for rich people back then. Um, I noted last week, James doesn't have a lot of good to say about rich people. Okay? Neither do I. But, uh, but that's a personal problem I have to get up. It's just envy. 
Now, um, then uh, the next one is this pale horse, yes? And we see that his rider is death. And then Hades is also following him. And they are given power to uh, kill a a quarter of the earth with a sword, hunger, death, and the beasts of the earth. You find those, by the way, in Ezekiel, I um, can't remember, I think it's chapter 14. But in the book of Ezekiel, you see those plagues that God said he will send upon the earth. Then you find, when the fifth seal is opened, you see the souls of people under the altar. Under what altar? Well, it can't be under the altar of the um, the temple that's in Jerusalem because there wasn't one. Because mm-hmm. Revelation is written in AD 96 and 26 years, 25 years before uh, the Romans leveled the Jerusalem temple. This is a temple in heaven and it comes up over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. We've already seen it in the book of Hebrews. So they're there. But they're crying out to be... um, They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for justice. Just because they're in heaven doesn't mean that everything's okay. Okay? We can just forget about justice. God never forgets about justice. And being in heaven, those in heaven will always demand justice. Justice is the key attribute, the key virtue. Not attribute, but the key virtue. Okay? Just think about this. Um, so, think about love. If, can you, you can love unjustly. You can show mercy unjustly when you shouldn't be showing mercy. You can have compassion and that compassion can be perverted Okay, so uh, an illustration I gave at our church in the Sunday school was uh, last week actually was this uh, VA dentist. You heard about him, who used his own instruments and infected 600 VA, uh, you know, veterans with HIV. So they gave him a desk job. That's not compassion. That's perversion of compassion. That's not justice, folks. God would never do that. Do you see? God would never do that. God is just. Compassion has to be just. Uh, love has to be just. God's not big kiss. Okay, I like a, I love all of you, you know? He's not an uh, Italian God. <laughs> um, he's... Uh, uh, he's... A God who will love, but he'll love injustice. Remember that we're told that, that uh, God had to find a way of being just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. In order to be the justifier, he had to find a just way of doing it. Because without justice, you don't have anything. Do you see? You don't have anything. Um, all of the other attributes are anchored in 
injustice. And, and that's not just me. I mean, the, the, the scholastics saw that a thousand years ago. <clears throat> so they want justice and they, they are crying out, how long, verse 10, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Well, these people obviously had been killed unlawfully and badly and by wicked people. A white robe is given to them and they're told to wait for a while until uh, the number of those to be killed was made up. Because that's a, that's a hard scripture, but it, it shows you that the martyrs, the Christian martyrs that are, are suffering in uh, different parts of the world, God knows about them and it, they're ordained to it. They're ordained to it. Uh, it's not that God doesn't care. God will reward them and bless them and so on. But that, that um, for, for reasons that we can't even fathom, these things have to happen. These things have to happen. And it's the same for the things that happen to us. Okay? Not our stupidity. Okay? You can't blame that one on God. Our stupidity, our not believing in God, our not obeying God, that's on us. Cancer coming on, a, on us, that's not on us, unless we've been smoking like a chimney for 50 years or whatever. Um, you know, those things, again, that's us. But, but um, the, the misery, the suffering, the difficulties that happen in life that are beyond our power, God doesn't like them. But remember Christ when he was asked about the problem of evil in Luke 13? He said, uh, do you remember that the blood of those people, <laughs> those people that whose uh, blood Pilate mixed with the sacrifices? Real nice. Or the people that the wall fell on? He just applied a message there. Make sure that you don't perish like them, you know? I mean, these things have to happen. They will happen in this kind of a world. It's a tough one for us to grasp. Difficult for me to grasp. It is. But it must happen. And then we find verse, uh, verse 12. I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. So an earthquake. Earthquakes have been prophesied in uh, a couple of places in the Old Testament to do with the end times. A real big one in... Zechariah 14. Christ comes back, his feet touch the uh, Mount of Olives and it splits. Real big earthquake. And it says, The sun became black as sackcloth and hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind and the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. What does that sound like? Sounds like it, you know, like, ta-da, here it is, here we are. Sounds like what Jesus said, uh, the signs that would accompany his second coming. Okay? This is second coming territory. Many interpreters, good interpreters, I have a friend who's written a big two-volume commentary on the book of Revelation, Tony Garland, and he disagrees with me on this, so I say he's wrong. But, um, but, I can't get over the fact that this is a second coming. 
I mean, it's like you can't say that's halfway through the tribulation. I mean, because the rest of the tribulation is kind of an anticlimax, isn't it? I mean, that's it. Especially because you, uh, you read about the fact that, um, verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. That's, his, that's the intensification of his wrath. His wrath started with the first horseman. But um, that's second coming. So what Revelation 6 is doing is it's taking you through the tribulation, through the 70th week of Daniel, all seven years of it, and giving you a quick look. There's going to be, you know, all of these things that God's going to pour out and these things that are happen are going to happen. Chapter 7 is a parenthesis. It's a, it's a interlude. And what you find is you find that uh, 144,000, verse 4, are sealed... And they are called of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then you have this prolonged passage from verse 5 to verse 8 where you're, you can think that you're in First Chronicles there for a little while, you know, because it gets it so detailed. It's like, well, I, yeah, right, when did you just say 12,000 for every tribe and be done with it? Why say... Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, Asher, 12,000, Naphtali, 12,000. Yeah, we get it. Why do that? Perhaps because there's a propensity of Christians to not believe that and to spiritualize it, which is exactly what they do. It's exactly what they do. In fact, many commentators on the book of Revelation say that this 144,000 is exactly the same as the bunch in verse 9 who are the great multitude that no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues. And they're standing before the throne, that means they're in heaven, and the Lamb. Well, maybe it's just me, but I have a problem with that. Because I can count, take me a long time, but I can count 144,000. I can't count an innumerable group of people because they're innumerable. Okay? So there's a difference there. 144,000 from these tribes. So they're Israelites. In verse 9, they're from all the nations and tongues. There's obviously a difference there. I mean, it's clear. They're in heaven in verse 9 and they're on earth in verses uh, 4 through 8. So, how do they deal with 144,000? Well, they say that it's, uh, you know, 12 squared and squared and whatever. And it's a, it's a perfection. It's a number of perfection. Where does the Bible say it's a number of, number of perfection? Where do they get that from? They might as well believe those people that believe the seven churches map out church history. 
it's, the, it's from the same um, garden shed, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's from the same toolkit. The Bible itself doesn't say it. So I'm not going to believe it. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to believe it. I'm just going to believe it's 144,000. I think that's, that's a pretty easy interpretation, personally. Especially when they crop up again in, verse, in uh, chapter 14 and we're given some additional information. This time they are in heaven, but we're told that they're all male virgins. In chapter 14. Alright, so if you've decided that the 144,000 isn't 144,000, but it's actually the same as the innumerable multitude, and it's not Israel, it's actually all the nations. What do you do with what it says about them in chapter 14 when it says that they are male virgins? You're going to have to spiritualise that too, aren't you? They're pure. Hold on a minute, are we all St. Augustine or something? We all have a problem with marriage? No, come on. There's nothing unholy about marriage. It doesn't, it's not anything to do with purity. We're not a bunch of monks here. So, and they're all men. Don't any women get to heaven? You know, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, it's not a gospel, it's just a sayings, um, uh, 114 sayings, okay? But the last one says that a woman can't get into heaven unless she becomes a man. Well, well, if you spiritualize these guys, you know, it says that they're all men. So, maybe it's true. You see, you, you get into trouble if you just don't believe what the Bible says. I do. And uh, they are crying out, these, uh, these saved people, that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. And uh, they're comforted. And notice they serve in his temple, verse 15. Chapter 8 you have the seventh seal opening, but uh, nothing really happens. You just get a scene setter. Uh, and uh, Christ is introduced here. Uh, another angel, uh, having a golden center, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense and uh, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And uh, the... Obviously, this is symbolic because you're told it's symbolic. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God with the uh, angel's hand. And then what happens? Uh, it's not Christ, sorry, but it's, it's, it's a, an angel that's ministering. Um, and then what happens is that the prayers that are offered bring a result, an answer. Look what the answer is. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings and an earthquake. And then the seven angels who uh, are to blow the seven trumpets are called up. Maybe that is... Um, that shows an answer to the prayer of the um, folks in chapter 6. Oh, sorry, in, uh, in, yeah, chapter 6. 
uh, the fifth trumpet. That's possible, you know, because they prayed, when were you Avengers? It's possible that it's that, that it's their prayers. Maybe not. But what we find then with the trumpets is that we find all kinds of, of nasty things happening, uh, fire mingled with blood and so on, the first one, all the, uh, a lot of green grass and trees are burned up, uh, something like a mountain turning, uh, being uh, thrown into the sea and the sea becoming like blood. Uh, and then in verse 10, you have this interesting passage. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was bitter. Uh, and then verse 12, the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars and a third of them were darkened that they wouldn't shine a third of the day. Now remember in chapter 6 at the end there with the sixth trumpet, it was worse than that. I mean the stars fell. They weren't darkened, they fell. So if for those people that believe that this comes after, the trumpets come after, uh, especially that trumpet, which one is it? The fourth? The fourth trumpet comes after the sixth seal which I've identified as the second coming, I hope you can see that, that it's not as bad. I mean, it, it doesn't fit because there's no stars there anyway. And the sun's already been blackened. What do you mean for a fourth of it? Or a third part of it? Whatever. I mean, it's dark. Do you see? That's why I'm saying what's happening here with the trumpets is that you're going through again. Do you see? You're going through again. You're seeing something else happening. It's kind of like a Hitchcock film, you know, where you get the, the, the camera, it pans out and then it goes in one, you know, the birds, you know, and it goes in one and he goes in and then he goes in again and he's got no eyes and so on. And, um, you know, it's kind of like that. You just, you're, you're getting more detail as you go in, but you're also getting uh, added information as well. So you're going through this tribulational period uh, getting, picking up more and more information about it from different angles. And I like to, to, uh, portray it as a kind of telescopic thing. So that you have, uh, six seals, okay, and they go through from year one to year seven of the tribulation and you have the second coming at the end of it. You have the seventh seal opens up the, or introduces the seven trumpets. So nothing much happens, okay, with that. Um, But then you have the trumpets, well, particularly six of the trumpets, really. And the trumpets kind of pick up and go through to the end again. I don't think that they start at year one. They probably start maybe year two, year three. Okay? And they go through again. In chapter 16, you're going to get the bowls. The bowls are really bad. I mean, they, you couldn't exist on earth for any more than perhaps 12 months, a few months even, with the things that come from the bowls. 
So the bowls, I think, you know, they start here. Maybe in, uh, you know, year six. And they just give you that intensified period. So what you have is that you have... Um, what you have is, is you have these different facets of the tribulation period. That's, that's the way I interpret that. And, and my main reason for doing that has to do with things like uh, that sixth seal. That's final, you know. So the trumpet's got to, they've got, you've got to go back. You've got to kind of have a, have a trombone effect. Okay, you're out here and then you come back again and then go back out again and then you come back a little bit and go out again, do you see? All right. So, chapter 9, the fifth angel sounded and this is the, uh, the first woe. You have uh, three woes. First woe is an interesting woe. <clears throat> I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, to him. So the stars are him. That's not a problem because in the Bible, stars can be angels. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, the stars are angels. Okay? They're not pastors, by the way, okay? They're angels. Um, I'm in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. You with me? Yes. Right. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit's going to show up quite a bit in the book of Revelation. In fact, this angel is going to be called the angel of the bottomless pit later on. In chapter 11, this guy, whoever he is, he's going to be powerful enough to destroy the two witnesses who are prophesying on earth. Interestingly, they're prophesying for a time times half a time, which is the same period as we see in uh, Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 12, <coughs> three and a half years. And we know it's three and a half years because the book of Revelation also says 1,260 days or 42 months and so on, which is three and a half years. So... Um, that means that this guy, this, this angel, is descending at a certain time, probably at the beginning of that three and a half year period, this, in the middle of the tribulation, in what Jesus, I think, calls in Matthew 24, the great tribulation. Okay? And I'm just, I'm, I'm using those as hooks just to kind of help us to, to understand the timeline. It says, verse 2, He opened the bottomless pit. A smoke arose out of the pit and the smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Well, they're already darkened according to chapter 6. So again, do you see what's going back? We've, we've pulled back here and we're coming at it again from a, um, a more detail from a different angle. Uh, and then these locust things come out. These are... These are demonic beasties that are coming out and they are stinging people for five months and, and they're stinging those that don't have the seal of God on them. Well, who have the seal of God on them? 144,000 do in chapter 7. 
So these are stinging people and they are torturing people for five months. These are literal. Hal Lindsay said these were Black Hawk helicopters or something. No, they're not. No, these are literal beasts. They come out of the bottomless pit. I've never seen a helicopter come out of a, a furnace. So... Um, it says they torment and men seek death verse 6 and they don't find it and describes them and it says that they have a king over them verse 11 who is it? it's the angel of the bottomless pit he's the king verse 11 he's even got a name Apollyon in Greek or Abaddon in Hebrew that means destruction or destroyer or perdition. Okay? One woe is past, two more to go. Sixth angel sounds. And uh, there are four angels released from Euphrates, verse 14. A huge army is released. They can kill a third of mankind. It says in verse 16 that the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. What does that symbolize? (laughs) But what is the number 200 million? Does it symbolize anything or are we to take that one literally? That's a lot of, that's a lot, you know. Why don't you just say something like, I don't know, 10,000 and then they can spiritualize 10,000 and make it whatever they want, can't they? I mean, why would you spiritualize 200 million? Yeah, it's kind of... Yeah. That's a lot of horses. So maybe it's literal. Okay, especially as these, again, are not any normal horses. Um, these ones have strange tails and... Uh, They have fire and smoke and brimstone coming out of their mouths. Verse 18. It says in verse uh, 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons. Note that please. Idols of gold, silver, brass, stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders. Murders. Their sorceries, which has to do with uh, use of drugs as well, and their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's what the earth dwellers are doing during this time. When all of these awful things are happening, they're, they're worshipping demons. They're murdering people. And they're not repenting. They're religious. They're very religious. But they don't want to worship God. Chapter 10 deals with uh, a book that John has to eat, uh, which gives you an idea that, that what's to come is kind of a new phase of Revelation. So chapter 11, he's given a reed, like a measuring rod, and the angel stood 
saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is on the outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it is to be given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, which is three and a half years. Where's this temple? Well, it's certainly not in heaven. No Gentiles are treading a temple underfoot in heaven. This is in earth, on earth. Where's the holy city? Clearly, that's Jerusalem. Even though later on, this city is, is given a spiritual name. Verse 8. Verse, it says, spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. And I think he was crucified in Jerusalem. So that's the city. But it tells you when it's spiritualizing it. Do you see? It's like in Galatians 3. Paul tells you he's using an allegory when he's using an allegory. You don't have to allegorize the Bible unless it's telling you to allegorize it. Or spiritualize it unless it tells you you to spiritualize it. And uh, it talks about these... uh, Notice, notice also, it's, it's given to the Gentiles, this temple, and so it means that there must be a rebuilt temple. And Jesus talked about a rebuilt temple in Matthew 24, when he's talking about the tribulation and what will happen just before his second coming. Uh, Paul talks about a temple, and this guy going into the temple, this man of sin going into the temple, saying that he's God, sitting in it. Okay, there is going to be a rebuilt temple on earth. This is it. And it's during this tribulation period, you see. It's during this, this 42-month period, which is going to be that second part of the tribulation. Uh, it says it's given over to the Gentiles. Uh, if you look at Daniel chapter 7, which deals with the little horn, do you remember about him? The fourth beast, ten horns come up on the beast. And those horns signify kings and kingdoms. And another horn comes up. He's more stout than its fellows. And he displaces three of the other horns. And this horn, um, he's a king. I mean, he's been identified as a king. And he speaks great things, pompous things, blasphemies against God. And he persecutes the saints of the Most High. Who are they in the book of Daniel? The church? No. Israel, clearly Daniel's people. Okay? Saints are the saints. And do you know how long he persecutes them for? A time, times, and half a time. And they're given into his hand. And so here, here I th- you, you see that something's happening, something bad is happening in Jerusalem. Jesus warned, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, leg it, go. Okay? Let he that is in Judea pray that it's not on the Sabbath day. You see? Israel. And in verse 3 in chapter 11, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days, which is three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. That's in Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is a a book that's full of second coming and tribulational and kingdom prophecies. 
These have power to shut, shut heaven, sorry, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, how long are they prophesying for? Okay. Can you think of somebody who prophesied for three and a half years? Elijah did. You told in the book of James, chapter 5, that he, prophes- that he did for three and a half years. Do you see? So, I think the first guy is Elijah. And it says that uh, they have power to t- over waters to turn them to blood to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Well, who did that? Moses. Moses. Who are the last three people in the Old Testament? Malachi chapter 4. Moses, Elijah, the Lord. Who show up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses, Elijah, the Lord. What did Jesus say before he was transfigured? He says, some of you will not see death before you see the kingdom coming. Well, they didn't see the wolf lying down with the lamb. They didn't see the world beautified. They didn't see any... What they did see is they saw the king transfigured. They saw him as he really is. Seeing the king means you see the kingdom. Do you see? When that king comes back, that glorious king comes back, he will transform, transfigure the world. But we're told in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 that they saw the second coming of Christ. He says that, that, you know, we saw him. And that's a figure of the second coming. Who was he with? Moses and Elijah. So, I think these two guys are Moses and Elijah. And uh, it says, verse 7, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends, ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. That's the angel of the bottomless pit of chapter 9. But now he's called the beast. That's a bit more, of inf- a bit more information, do you see? And so... Uh, it says that they're killed, everybody looks at them, well, we can do that in our informational age. That certainly is possible. They celebrate, well, you can see the world celebrating over something like that. It says they terrorised people. They were God's agents. <clears throat> and it says that uh, after three and a half days, they hear a word, come up here, and they resurrect and they ascend in front of everybody back up to heaven. That's kind of cool. It says there's a great earthquake, verse 13. Great earthquake, there it is. Second woe is past, behold the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud, loud voices in heaven, saying, look, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's not halfway through the tribulation, folks. That's right at the very end. Okay? It's a done deal. We know who the winner is. And so, they're worshipping him, the 24 elders in heaven, verse 16, and they are saying here that uh, you've taken power. Verse 17. You've taken power. Verse 19, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen 
in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hails. Very noisy in heaven. Sometimes, anyway. Um, So you see the temple and you see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we are told that Moses was commanded to make the tabernacle after the pattern that he was shown in the mount. We're not told he was... uh, not said that he was uh, given the pattern of the ark of the ark of the covenant. We're told that he was given directions of how to make it, but not the pattern of it. In other words, the uh, the tabernacle is a copy. The ark of the covenant's not a copy. Now think about this: Why would the ark of the Mosaic covenant that's made between God and Israel? Why would it be a copy of one that's in heaven? What's the use of having one in heaven? It's the Ark of the Mosaic Covenant that's made on earth. So there's only one Ark, do you see? So if you want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is, this one tells you. It's not in Ethiopia, you're in a cave somewhere. It's here. Um, And some interesting things happen once this Ark, which is the Ark of the Commandments of God, remember, is opened. You will see... In, uh, let's look at a few verses in the, uh, the next chapters. Uh, chapter 13, verse, well, no, chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17. We'll come back to this dragon in a minute, but it says, The dragon was enraged with a woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring to keep the commandments, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Chapter 13, uh, verse... Uh, oh, hold on a minute. Chapter 14, verse 12. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. See that? Chapter 15, verse 3. These redeemed people sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Why this mixing of, of the law and, and uh, Christ, Moses and Christ together? It's interesting, isn't it? You know, you can, you can keep the commandments of God all you want, but it's not going to save you. Because you're a sinner. It's only faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. But here, these, it's, it's particularly mentioned that they are keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ together. After we have the Ark of the Covenant opened, like a, a symbolic act going on. It's very Jewish. You see that? It's very Jewish. Jesus said in Matthew 24, I think verse 13, he said, He that endures to the end will be saved. And I've told you before that unless you think you believe that saved there is saved spiritually, you have a tautology where all that Jesus is saying is that he that makes it through makes it through. Do you see? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what? Yeah. Like, that's, there's nothing profound about that. I mean, you might say, well, Jesus, that's not exactly your golden hour there. Your, you know, your, your most profound moment. Of course, it's, it's not, he's not saying that. What is he saying? He's saying, in the tribulation, those that endure, 
to the end are saved. We saw in the book of Hebrews there's all this stuff on enduring to the end, the end, and enduring and making the, you know, the kingdom of rest and so on, striving to enter in. And it's second coming context, isn't it? Fits into this. It's Jewish, written to Hebrews. That's another reason why I take that tack. Might not be popular, common. You might think it's out in left field and, uh, you know, I should be, uh, have it on a sandwich board and be parading up and down High Street in Ukiah saying the end is near. <laughs> but I think it fits. So I don't think it's cranky. I think it actually fits. It only fits because you allow the Bible to to roll out that way, you see. Remember the new covenant, which is Hebrew, what Hebrews is all about, is made with Israel at the second coming. <clears throat> so, chapter 12, verse 1, there's a great sign. A woman clothed with a sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. In Genesis chapter... 37, you have, uh, you have Joseph, he has two dreams. One of them is the uh, sheaves that bow down to him. And one of them is the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. And Jacob says, what are you saying? Are you saying that myself and your mother, Leah, and your brothers will bow down to you? He interprets the dream. Here, the woman, sun, moon, 12 stars. Who's the 12th star? No, no, no. No, come on. Let's go slower. Okay. (laughs) Chapter 37. Joseph has a dream. Sun, moon, 11 stars bow down to him. Okay. Who's the sun? No. Jacob says, Jacob says, I mean, bless you, I'm sorry. Jacob says, shall I and your mother and your brothers bow down to you? Who's the son? Or who's Jacob? He's the son. Who's Leah? The moon. Who are the 11 stars? The brothers. So here you have 12 stars. You have sun, the moon, and 12 stars. Who's the 12th star? Joseph. That's right. Do you see? Who's the woman? Israel. It's not difficult, is it? It's not difficult. And it becomes easier when you read. It says, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. This is a vision, Okay. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Uh, you're told in verse 9 that this is the devil. This is Satan. So you don't have a problem with who the dragon is. If this is, the dragon is Satan and the woman is Israel, then we've got two important parts of, of this vision. It's not difficult. If you know the Old Testament, it's not difficult to identify the woman. And it says here, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman and was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. I take here, uh, it's, it's difficult, but uh, 
probably what's meant here is that a third of the stars, stars often in the book of Revelation, are angels. These are fallen angels, I believe, that, are, that come and are sent to earth by Satan at the first coming of Christ. The, de- the demons that he was meeting all the time, you see? Maybe I'm wrong there. But it says that uh, he was to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Well, who's that? Psalm 2, Jesus. It's, it's the Christ, the King, do you see? So we know the child is Jesus. And her child was caught up to God and is to his throne. Resurrection and ascension. Verse 16, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. We've had that time period before. That's three and a half years. But is this three and a half years straight after the ascension of Christ? Could be. But remember what I've told you. If the woman's in Israel, basically after the ascension of Christ, I mean, just a short time afterwards, God's not dealing with just Israel anymore. He's dealing with the church. Do you see? Do you remember? I've said, how do you uh, fill in that gap between the first and second comings? You fill it with the church. So God's not dealing. So again, just as you see uh, the first and second comings sandwiched together in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and Micah 5, 2 and those kinds of places, um, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, you see it here too. If you say that the woman who's flying into the wilderness being pursued by the devil is uh, part of this scenario, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, it fits very nicely into Matthew 24. Okay, when Israel, people in Israel are told to flee. Moreover, we're told in verse 7, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Well, the devil, look, this is not the first coming. This is not the first coming. The devil was not thrown down from you know, from uh, heaven in the first coming. I know Jesus said, I beheld him fall as lightning from the sky. That's true. But what he's saying is he fell from his previous role, his previous position. Do you see? It's not just, it's not just talking about this. Notice uh, that John helps us with the interpretation. It says, uh, verse 9, So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. But I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength, and the kingdom of God, and the power of his Christ have come. This is the last, this is the verge of the kingdom again. Do you see? This is the last days. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives till death. This is tribulation. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. 
and see, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. How long does he have? I'm thinking he has 1,260 days. What's he going to do in that time? We're going to be told. But it says in verse 13, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman. He's turning now against Israel. Folks, do you remember? Of course you do. In Daniel chapter 9, where 70 weeks are determined upon his people, Daniel's people, Israel, 69 of those weeks, which is 483 years, had been completed until Messiah came and was cut off. And then it says that uh, uh, the prince who will come will, uh, will make a covenant for one week. But he says he will break it in the middle. He says he will cause sacrifice and offering to cease in the middle of it. Jesus said, I mean, you know that a temple for sacrifices, you, you know that, that um, uh, if false sacrifices are, or if, if sacrifices are stopped, they're, they're stopped by a, a, a power that is anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. So, obviously, the one who makes the covenant makes it for seven years. They can rebuild the temple and do all of that stuff, but he breaks it. Something happens in the middle of the week. He breaks the covenant and then he pursues Israel. That's mirrored by what's going on here with Satan being cast down to earth, do you see? And he pursues the woman. And it says here, uh, the woman was given two wingle, two wingles, two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Remember, the woman is a figure, so the wings are a figure, where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. Daniel seven, Daniel twelve. Uh, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. Uh, Jesus said that the end will be like a flood. It may well be a literal flood that, that tries to flood out uh, Israel from its hiding place. But it says that uh, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. Again, seeming to indicate that it's a literal flood. The dragon was enraged with a woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring to, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13 we have to keep going, guys. I'd be all right with this. Last time, just take a deep breath. Okay? There's some points I'm going to skip. This stuff is important. Okay? Chapter 13. He sees a beast coming out of the sea. All right? Notice it has blasphemous names on it. What does the beast look like? Well, so it says it's like a leopard, but it has bear's feet and a lion's mouth. What does it look like? What does it look like? Tells you, just tells you what it looks like. What does it look like? Nope. What does actually the beast look like? Verse 2. A leopard. Thank you. It looks like a leopard. Alright. Just has funny feet and a funny mouth. And it says the dragon gave him, he's a person, his power, his throne and great authority. Oh, well, 
that would mean that that when Satan is pursuing Israel, this guy's probably going to pursue Israel too, you see, because he's his underling. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. It's a deadly wound. And the world marveled and followed the beast. Well, look, if it's just a, a, a graze or something, that's not going to cause everyone to marvel. If he's dead and he rises from the dead, that might cause people to marvel. Do you see that? It says the world marveled over him. And it says here, verse 12, uh, says that he had, the first beast had a deadly wound that was healed. He dies. And then he, it's healed. He seems to rise back again. Just like Jesus. So, and he's called the beast. Well, where have we seen somebody called the beast before? No? Come on, today. The angel of the bottomless pit is called the beast. Do you see? I'm not saying that they're the same guy, but you'll see that actually they are the same. In just a sec. And uh, so all the world is marveling and following the beast. They worship the dragon. They're worshipping the devil. And that, uh, who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Uh, well, we have the... Maybe this is the white horse rider. No, maybe not. But he went forward conquering and to conquer. Maybe. But I'll say this, that there, this guy is a charismatic world leader. That's what we need. I mean, we don't need him, but... Um, but the world doesn't have a charismatic world leader. We have a, a bunch of wet fish, don't we? For, for leaders. And uh, it says, he was given a mouth speaking great things, blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. It's interesting that they pair great things and blasphemies. Isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Second Corinthians chapter 2, you have the man of sin, the son of destruction or son of perdition, who sits in God, in, in the temple of God, as God, and he blasphemes God. Daniel chapter 7, you have the little horn, okay, who speaks great pompous words and blasphemes God and persecutes the saints of the Most High who are given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. It's the same guy. He's defeated by the second coming of Christ in Daniel 7. This is in the second part of the tribulation. This is the guy we know as, as the Antichrist. Okay? We just use that name for him. It's, it's in... Uh, First John, but we we use that name. But he's called the Beast. And he's called the Angel of the Bottomless Pit. And it says it's granted for him to make war with the saints. That's exactly the language that's used of the uh, of the uh, little horn in Daniel seven. And to overcome, an authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's a world ruler. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. He's He's worshipped. 
whose names have not been written in the book of life slain from the foundation of the world. In chapter 14 you're told that uh, anyone who receives the mark and who worships this beast uh, is damned. Uh, and the full wrath of God's anger is poured out on them. I mean, they don't get any half measures at all. And so, uh, verse 11, you have another beast. This beast exercises, verse 12, all the authority of the first beast, but only in his presence. And he does miracles. And he points people to the beast. He's just like John the Baptist, who pointed people to Jesus. Do you see? He performs great signs so that even he makes fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. (coughs) Deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. It's a thing, it's an image in the temple. Here you're not said, you're not told where it's put, but we know from the Olivet Discourse where it's put. They're making an image. They're making a, a statue. Uh, this statue is actually enlivened. It's, uh, it's, it's, it actually speaks. Verse 15. And causes as many as won't worship the image to be killed. So look, you're, you're either on Christ's side and you're dead or you worship the image. And to make sure you worship the image, it's just not, you know, uh, lip service. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads that no one might buy or sell. You can't get anything at the store. You can't get any food, any provisions. Remember uh, the, the uh, horsemen. They've, they've devastated that anyway. So there's not much going around. You can't get anything if you don't take this mark. You know how it's going to be dished out, rationing. That's going to be the, the rationale for it, isn't it? Rationing. There's not much to go around, so you've got to have this mark. Uh, the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. His name, you have, you have to calculate it, it's 666. It's a man. You're told it's a man. So the beast in the first part of chapter 13 is identified as a man. So as long as you keep reading, you'll un- understand the beast is weird, but, you're, but it's just a man. By the way, this may not mean anything. This is me. This is me. But what kind of beast is it? What's the mark of a leopard? Do you ever see what a leopard spot looks like? It really looks, I'm telling you, it really looks, you can bring it up on your phones, but not here. Uh, it, it really looks like somebody who's put lipstick on and kissed a mirror. Yeah. 
I'm not saying that that's it, but it's an interesting concept. Um, uh, possibly it will look something like that. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's some speculation. Do you see? I'm telling you that speculation. But the fact of the matter is, he's got this mark, he's got this number, he's got this name. He has a name. And it's not going to be Beast or Angel the Bottomless Pit. He'll, it, you're told it's Abaddon or Apollyon. It could be that. It just could be straight out of the book of Revelation. Apollyon written on somebody's hand or something. Possibly. Chapter 14, you have the 144,000. They're on earth at the beginning and then they are given harps. This is where we have uh, go to heaven and play a harp for eternity. Um, we get it out of here. And uh, they are redeemed from the earth, verse 3, at the end of verse 3. And uh, we're told in verse 4 that they're the first roots to God and to the Lamb. You know, from those that are reaped from the earth. Uh, there in their mouth was found no deceit and they are without fault before the throne of God. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying. He doesn't have wings. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. Sorry with Christmas coming up, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, as, as, as the pastor of the church, you know, being asked to put, uh, can we put Christmas decorations out? You can see that, that I'm a bit of a, um, killjoy. But, so I kid with, I kid them and I say, yeah, as long as you chop the wings off the angels. <laughs> yeah, and get rid of, get rid of the three kings as well. <laughs> they didn't even show up. So, um, so it's a very small display. <laughs> no, actually, I allow them to have angel uh, wings to have I know, no, no, they, uh, we do. We allow the angels to have wings, but in the Bible they don't. Um, so he's having the everlasting gospel, but this is not good news. It's good news for God. It's good news for the creation project. It's good news. For the redeemed, it's not good news for the world. Remember in Jude, it says that Christ uh, went over and preached the gospel to those who were captive. He wasn't giving them an opportunity to get saved. It was condemning them. He was condemning them. He was showing them that they were justly condemned. Here, this gospel is to the earth dwellers from every nation, tribe, tongue and people. These are the ones who were murdering people and worshipping idols and demons and so on. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Creation, folks. Creation. Do you see that? And then Babylon is fallen. Uh, we haven't dealt with Babylon. We can't deal with Babylon today. Chapters 17 and 18 deal with Babylon. What does it mean? Rome? No, it means Babylon. Okay? Babylon, um, Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it. You can go online, put in Babylon, and you can have a look around it. Google Earth. You can, you know, if the ISIS hasn't blown it all up. And um, he wants to rebuild it. Did you know the United States government gave money, millions of dollars, to the Iraqi government to rebuild Babylon? Yeah. 
So I think it's Babylon. Babel is the same place. It's where man tried to be independent from God. So it's fallen. And then verse 9. Then, this is interesting. And I know um, I've got to shut up in a minute. But Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships a beast in his image, receives his mark on his forehead, he's done. They drink of uh, the wrath of God. In chapter 14, verses 14 down to the end, you have reaping going on. First of all, is one like the Son of Man, almost certainly is Jesus, and he reaps the harvest of the earth. Then you have another angel puts in his sickle and he reaps the grapes of the earth. And where does he put them? In the wine press of the wrath of God. What do you do with the harvest? Yeah, you, you, you preserve it, you keep it, it's good stuff. Jesus said at the end of the earth, at the end of the world, the end of the age, the angels will come and they will separate the wheat from the tares. In Matthew 13, do you remember that? This is what's going on here. Where are these, these are obviously saints, they've made it through somehow. Um, the tribulation saints who have been, you know, made it through. Where are they taken? Possibly it's a post-tribulational rapture. I don't favour that. I favour the fact that they are just taken away from the place where Jesus is going to come on and stomp on a load of sinners. So they're taken to safety. Okay? Uh, it says that uh, it's, it's called the... It's kind of bloody, isn't it? Verse 20. The winepress was trampled outside the city. Well, the city's obviously um, Jerusalem. Blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. A lot of blood going on there. Isaiah 63. Let me read it. Okay? Second coming passage. Isaiah 63. There's a dialogue going on. A questioner and an answerer. The answerer is the Lord. Who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments of Bosra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments and I've stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart. Day of vengeance. Jesus uses that term in Luke 21 about his second coming. And the year of my redeemed has come. Vengeance and redemption, they go together. You see it again in Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Those things go together. It says, verse 6, I have trodden down the peoples in my angry, in my anger, made them drink in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. And it gets all good. Um, New Covenant stuff. Second coming. So, chapter 14, we are again shown the second coming. Then it gets into the bowls. It's chapter 16. The bowls are poured out. They're really bad. It could only be right at the end. Okay? Chapter 17 and 18, Babylon. We've done Babylon. 
So, chapter 19, what do we have? After these things I heard a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honour and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And they say, Alleluia, again, verse 3. Twenty-four elders fall down. They say, Alleluia, too. And uh, it says in verse 6, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's just not some empty, air-headed, God reigns, you know, stuff. That means he's really reigning the way that we want him to. And then he says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife is made, has made herself ready. In 2 Corinthians, we are, it's said that we are betrothed to Christ. The church is. We're the bride of Christ. Okay? This is the marriage of the church to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Christ and the church is a picture of uh, human marriage. So, uh, at some point, there will be this great celebration. That means the church has got to be completed, do you see? At some point before the end. I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, uh, and I hope that that's right. But, <laughs> but I can't be absolutely certain. But, uh, you, you do have here this, uh, this, feast that goes on. Then verse 11, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, just like Jesus in chapter 1. His, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Chapter 14, Isaiah 63. His name is called the Word of God. And the arm is in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. If that's a post-tribulation rapture, folks, you know, you go up, you get changed, you jump on a horse and you come straight back again. You see? Which, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is, but I think that's a bit strange. Um, and it says here, um, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. The man-child who Satan was persecuting, he was going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. It's Christ at his second coming. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We've just seen that. And he has on his robe... And on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes back, folks, that will mean more than just something we sing at Christmas. It really will be, uh, it will have its full power when we see him. Do you see? And then, uh, obviously, he stomps on a bunch of people and so the birds have to eat them all up. Um... Then there's doom for those that have received the mark and then there's doom for the false prophet and there's doom for the beast. Chapter 20 uh, deals with those uh, who... Um, it's, again, it's clear up and it deals with those who were decapitated during this period. They are resurrected. 
Okay, anastasis, they're resurrected again and they reign with Christ a thousand years. Folks, uh, we're told in chapter 6 that these people had to die in a certain way but don't think they won't be rewarded. Don't think that they won't be rewarded. The sufferings that we go through may be really difficult, really trying and so on but don't think that God doesn't know. Don't think that God will not uh, respond with his overflowing love and, and uh, glory when he comes back. In, in fact, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that God, is it chapter 2 or chapter 1? 2 4. He says that God wants to show his kindness to us. You see, he wants to show us that. He's waiting to do that. Um, and so the dragon is bound now, okay? There he is, it's the same guy, serpent, devil, Satan, bound for a thousand years, cast into the bottomless pit, shut him up, sealed. Okay, so what do our millennialists and covenant theologians do? Spiritualize a whole lot. So that he's bound with a long chain. That's why he can go about like a roaring lion, you know? Devouring Christians. That's not what he says. It says that he's bound and he's shoved in in the bottomless pit and that the bottomless pit is sealed. The last time the bottomless pit was sealed, those beasties that came out stinging people in chapter 9 couldn't get out. The angel of the bottomless pit had to unseal it and open it for them to get out. So, if it's put back on again, that means Satan's in it. Do you see? An angel does this, binds him, puts him in there. If, if, um, if this angel botches the job, he should be put on traffic duty somewhere. <laughs> this is a really responsible duty, isn't it? Like, deal with this guy, he's really dangerous, you know? Again, spiritual interpretation of the Bible leads to absurdities. People say, well, it's a spiritual chain. How can you have a spiritual chain? Answer, what's more difficult to make, a spiritual chain or a spiritual being? So if you can have a spiritual being, you can have a spiritual chain and let's pass the salt and move on. (laughs) Honestly, people come up with these ridiculous excuses it's like, what about this? What about that? What about... Just believe the Bible, will you? Just believe it. And uh, a thousand years. He's, he's released after the thousand years. But for a thousand years, Satan is not an operator on earth. Christ is the king on earth. Okay? And it says... Uh, that uh, he saw thrones and judgment committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast. So these are from the tribulation. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. You want to be part of the first resurrection, verse 6. You don't want to be part of that second resurrection, as we'll see in a second. So, Verse 7, after the thousand years have expired, Satan is released from his prison. 
According, again, according to our millennialists, he's already, he's not even in prison. He's on a long chain. Honestly, I'm not kidding. He's on a long chain. I mean, how would you feel if you came round to my house and I had this, this bloodthirsty, man-eating dog and, you know, and, I, and you said, look, I'm afraid of your dog. And I said, it's okay, it's on a chain. <laughs> and it comes bounding towards you with this huge chain and bites a big chunk out of you because it's on a huge chain. What's my guarantee worth? Do you see? God's not... They make God so absurd, don't they? So, um, so it says that he's released uh, and then he, he gets all these sinners. Remember, Christ rules with a rod of iron. He gets all these sinners. They come against Jerusalem and fire. That's it. And then uh, he's cast into the lake of fire where the uh, beast and the false prophet have been all this time. Then, great white throne, heaven and earth flee away. That's it. This creation project's over, folks. Heaven and earth, this planet, flee away. This creation. And you have the judgment. Chapter 21. You have... New heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth have passed away. It's not the same place anymore. Now there is continuity between the kingdom of Christ on this earth and the kingdom of Christ on the new earth. It's still his kingdom. The same people in it. Do you see? But now they have switched to a better locale. You see, during the, the, uh, during the kingdom on this earth, because this earth is cursed, Christ by his power, you know, he's still the wind and the waves, didn't he? He will bring peace, he'll steal the wind and the waves, he'll still the, the ravenous beasts. Uh, he will make the nations beat their, plowsh- uh, their plowshares into Swords into plowshares and you know whatever else, and um, he'll do all of that. But you see, the the power to produce what God wants the world to produce isn't inherent in the planet because it's cursed. Do you see that? Something wrong with it. It's subdued by the presence of the King, the Creator, but it's not perfect. That's why you need a new heavens and a new earth. And so verse three tells you. I heard, um, <clears throat> where are we? A loud voice, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There will be no more pain for the former things, the creation project, as I might say, have passed away. Chapter 22, verse 3 in describing the new Jerusalem, it says, and there shall be no more curse. Do you see? So even this golden kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament and that is spoken of here, this thousand year kingdom, now we know how long it's going to be, a thousand years. 
Of course, they spiritualize that too. But, um, <clears throat> but this kingdom, it cannot, it cannot be eternal on this earth because of the curse. We, God has to say there was no more curse in order for perfection, for eternity to move forward, you see. There's a rationale for the new heavens and new earth, in other words. Notice that the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven from God to earth. Why? Think of the creation project. Where's it at? Earth. This planet. So heaven comes to earth. Do you see? And it says the tabernacle of God is with men. The new Jerusalem is, is shaped like a cube which is what the naos, the Holy of Holies, was shaped like. It itself, if, if you like, is a holy place. Okay? Which is why it doesn't have a temple in it, because it is a temple. And it, in fact, it says that God and the Lamb are the temple that are within it. But there are also, you'll see, there are nations that are outside it. You will see in chapter 21 that... Uh, um, where is it? <clears throat> verse, uh, it has foundations and has gates in verses uh, 14 and 15 and so on. And uh, it says here in, where are we? Verse 24, the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. And its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. What nations, folks? The nations that were promised blessing in the Abrahamic covenant. You have Israel given their covenantal blessings. The church is married to Christ. It's covenantal blessings. Now the nations get their covenantal blessings. Here's my last heresy. This is the last class, last few minutes of the class. Let's throw another heresy in there, just for fun. I believe, and again, you don't have to follow me on this, but I believe there are three peoples of God. You have Israel. You have the nations, they can be clearly identified in the Old Testament as having covenantal obligations and you have this new thing called the church. Okay? But these three people are really one people. They're all human beings, but they are divided into three. They're a triad. God likes triads, folks. He does. He really does like triads. Yeah? It would be very unusual if those human beings who are the, the uh, zenith of his creation, who are made in the image of God, don't image God, the Trinity, in their makeup here. Because you have a triad here reflecting the Trinity. Do you see that? You say, well, yeah, but what about the one people? They are one people of God. But God likes variety. Yeah, how many beetles are there? Beetles, not four. Um, I mean, how many beetles has God created? Okay, too many, <laughs> many of us would say. But there's loads of these things scurrying around, aren't they? He likes variety. 
this idea of one big glob at the end of, of, uh, of history going into uh, the wonders of, of uh, eternity, it just doesn't seem like God. He likes variety. Why wouldn't he have a triad of humanity after all of <laughs> what humanity and God have been through that reflects the Trinity of God. Moreover, um, Hosea chapter 2, you have Israel calling God, the Father, husband. You have the church married to Christ. Maybe the nations, this is not said, you're not told this in the Bible, this is speculation from Hennebury. But don't think that Revelation finishes um, at the book of Revelation. It finishes for us. But when Jesus comes back, the Holy Spirit will work in the nations to bring them into salvation. Perhaps there will be a marriage, as it were, of the nations to the Holy Spirit. That would certainly kind of fit, I think. Because you've already got a marriage to Israel and a marriage to the church. I, I like the picture. You don't have to believe it. Because the Bible doesn't say that. So... But it does say those two things. Uh, so, at the end, and I'm sorry that I've kept you so long. Thank you for your patience. But it says, don't take away from the words of this book. Well, you know, yeah, you don't need to take away. Just spiritualize them. <laughs> or believe them. Believe them. That's what we've done all through this, these courses. And uh, we've come, I think, to a satisfactory conclusion. Uh, it may not be what everybody wanted, but I think that God ties up the creation project really nicely and moves into eternity um, in a, a glorious fashion. And so the last prayer of the Bible is, even so, even so, come the one who the world is made for in the first place, the one who once he has, when he's redeemed the world, when he's ruled the world, will bring it back to God, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, give it back to him, having defeated the sa uh, Satan, and then we'll, we'll enter into the eternal kingdom. And God will be all in all. And uh, who knows what will happen then. Okay? But the creation project will, will be complete. All right, we're done. Thank you very much for your, um, for your attention. Are there any questions or any observations quickly before we close? Oh dear. Apocalypse is a Greek word, apocalypto. It means to unveil. To unveil. So if I had a, if I had a statue, okay, and... Uh, you, you know, went to an unveiling. So we went to a, the unveiling of the um, Jesse Pittman Bridge, okay, in Willits. And um, so Ida's there, and, you know, the family's there, and they are waiting for this plaque to be unveiled. You can't see what's behind it until it's unveiled, but when it's unveiled, you can see. That's what an unveiling is. That means it's a revelation. It's, 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 designed for you to see. 
And so, liberal scholars have invented, because they don't believe the Bible, they've invented this genre called apocalyptic, whereby it's veiled. It's veiled, and they call it apocalyptic. And they say that uh, Ezekiel is apocalyptic, and they say Daniel's apocalyptic, and say the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. The book of Revelation is not an apocalyptic book. It's called several times, five or six times, a prophecy. And it's a clear prophecy. So again, scholarship, sometimes they tell us some interesting things, but it cannot be followed. The simple Bible believer, if he just believes what God says, doesn't have to worry about all these intimidating terms, all of these uh, doctors who, you know, they're always disagreeing with each other anyway. They're always changing their opinions every 10 years. So, better just to ignore them and just believe what God says. This is actually a revelation. It's an unveiling and we'll stick with that.